0: Hi, I'm Dr. John Neufeld, and welcome to Truth and Life Today. It's a privilege today to have Pastor Paul Park. He's a pastor of a local church, and he's an individual who's committed to expositional Bible teaching. What does that mean? And what is your pastor supposed to do when he stands behind the pulpit? Clearly, we need to talk. It's important to face these realities because unless we do, we'll never know what to do next. Well, it's gonna be a joy to have Pastor Paul Park with us and we're gonna talk about something called expositional preaching. And let me tell you why I think that's so important. There was something that happened in the Christian church 500 years ago and it was called the Reformation. And the Reformation changed the way in which we did church. Prior to the Reformation, if you had gone to church, you would have found a table standing at the center. It would have been called the table of the Eucharist. The Middle Ages churches believed that the blessing of God flows through receiving the Eucharist. Well, then a change in theology happened. The blessing of God comes from hearing the word of God and believing what you hear. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And we are saved through faith and by faith alone. Well, what does that mean in terms of the local church? Well, one of the things that happens is that the furniture changes. Instead of having the table of the Eucharist at the center, you've got a pulpit at the center. And on the pulpit, you've got a Bible. And behind the pulpit, you have the man. So I'm going to tell you a little story about one of the reformers by the name of John Calvin. John Kelvin had been kicked out of Geneva and out of his pulpit for a period of about two years. And he comes back after two years and he doesn't say, folks, I'm so glad I'm back. And hey, Harry and Mary, I notice you're here again and good to see you again. He says nothing. Instead, there's a little marker in his Bible where he left off when he was last with them. And without saying a word, he simply opened his Bible to the place where he had left them two years ago and simply read the text and just started to explain what that text actually meant. It's because Kelvin and the other reformers believed that it wasn't about him. It was about the scripture itself. The power of God came in simply reading the Bible and explaining what the Bible meant and then bringing application into the lives of God's people. If you do that well... God's people will come to believe God, and the blessing of God will flow into their lives. I mean, that's a revolutionary thought. So whenever you go to church, you shouldn't care what your preacher actually believes about anything. You should care about what the Bible says, and you should care that the Bible has been properly explained so that you can believe it and know how to live your life. It's about what God says, and it's not about what your pastor says. Our guest today is Paul Park, and Paul believes that. Paul's a young man. He's 35 years old or somewhere around there. Um, he's got a wife. He's got one small child. And he's given himself to the last a year and a half to being the senior pastor of his church. He's committed to verse-by-verse Bible teaching. And we're going to talk about what that actually means and why that's so important. So uh, Paul Park is going to join us in just a little bit. It's going to be a delight to hear him share. So Pastor Paul Park, welcome, delighted to have you on Truth and Life today. Uh, we're going to talk about your role as a preacher. So you preach, how many times do you preach? Um, I probably preach uh, about 60% in our 60% rotation. 60% of yeah. the time. So you're up in the pulpit quite a bit. Yeah. And uh, everyone who's up in the pulpit asks themselves the question, what am I doing here? What am I supposed to be doing here? What, what's your job in the pulpit? For me, my job at the pulpit is to expose the Word of God to everyone. Okay, expose the Word of God. Now, a lot of people say that, and you get some people out there, they say they grab a text here, and they grab a text here, and they say, I'm going to talk about something, and then I'm going to show you what the Bible says
1: about that one thing. You're not a guy like that, are you? No, it's, it's, I think that's challenging. Because then I have to come up with something that's, you know, life-altering and life-changing. And I'm not sure if that's in me. So, well, actually, I am sure that's not in me. So you got nothing life-altering to say. (laughs) No, I actually don't. (laughs) That's good. That's good. So what do you do? So I think I, I have to, well, I know I believe, I have to lean into the Word of God where the Word of God itself, I believe, has power. Uh, scripture tells us that and I've experienced that. So if I believe that this is a truly living and active word that actually has power to save, that has power to um, show us and reveal to us what Christ is, who Christ is, what he has done, then, then to be honest, that's the only thing that I can really preach. Just like what Paul said, right? I've decided to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. And that's, that's my goal at the pulpit all the time. So you
0: think it's your job to tell people what's in the text of Scripture itself. Now, Paul, it's an old book, Mm -hmm. right? Um, It's, um, you know, it's been close to 2,000 years since it's completed. Mm -hmm. It took about 1,600 years to write this thing. And so you believe that what's in here is
1: life transforming to the people that you talk to. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. I think it's, it, yes, it's antiquity. Um, we study literature and history and things like that. But I do believe, again, I, I do believe that this is living and active. I, I believe the Holy Spirit, when you invite Him to illuminate the word that is in front of you, um, this is life changing, this is life informing, this is life giving. Um, so it's not just a book that we read, even though we do interact with it mostly in a form of a book. Sometimes, I guess, in the form of a smartphone or a computer screen. Um, but when we engage with the Word of God, I do believe that we're engaging with God himself. And that's powerful in itself. So uh, why would I preach something else? So
0: you've just called the Bible two things. You said it's an engagement with God. And you've also said it's the Word of God. Mm. So talk
1: to us about what what do you mean when you say those words? I believe God's gifted us um, with a revelation of himself. And that's truly a gift. It's out of his grace. He didn't owe it to us. And yet, um, out of his love for us, he pursued us and he wanted to have relationship with us. And in the Bible, we hear that um, Jesus became flesh and he became, he was logos, he was the word, right? And and the primary form that we experience God is through his word. And I think Jesus and his spirit um, allows us to engage with God, the creator, God, someone that we can't comprehend, someone who is so much greater that we can't fit into our tiny brains. Um, But God has given us the opportunity to engage with him through his word. Um, I I do believe this is Jesus. And and the word of God that was given to us is our only opportunity to truly know him. Okay. so okay. so this.
0: This text is the only text that we have by which we can know God. Are you saying that? Absolutely. Okay, so that's that's really significant. So if you want to get to know your Creator, you've got to read this book. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a significant thing to say. So, what is it that we actually find when we read this book? Because some of the stuff that I read in this book, I mean, it's going to talk about, you know, things that happened. Long in antiquity used, used that word a lot of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it has all sorts of historical background to it. Sometimes it's got details, sometimes it's got <laughs> genealogies. Yeah. Do we need to know all that stuff? I mean, is that how God speaks to us?
1: Yeah, I think it's beautiful. I'm a literature geek. I, I've studied it in university and things like that. But God uses, like you say, poetry. Um, there's historical details that we go like, really, the author really included that? That mm-hmm. seems such a minor detail. And yet this really adds to the credibility, in my opinion, to the, to the reality of what God is doing here. He's not only just giving us a beautiful poetry so, to entertain us. He's not giving us just accounts of historical war and battles and things like that just to inform us. Um, there is really, in every line, which we'll see later, in every line that we read, in every word that we read, I believe there's an, an expression that God is trying to make to us, a revelation of himself, a revelation of how who we are in him, how we can interact with him, the salvation history uh, from the beginning to the very end. There's a very cohesive and yet very unique story there um, in different genres, in different forms, in different um, historical times. It's Like you said, it's written over th- thousands of years. There's differences in that and yet one cohesive story about Jesus who is the hero and a salvation story that is the most beautiful love story ever written. You know, Paul, I've said it sometimes
0: that if God writes a book, you'd expect that the book that God would write would be different from every other book that we pick up. Mm -hmm. Um, There is no other book, I think, that took 1,600 years to write. You would agree with that. And there is, you know, here we have 1,600 years. We have, you know, some 40 different authors. Mm -hmm. um, And they write from all sorts of different contexts. The book is written in three different languages. Um, and yet you said it tells one cohesive story. Mm-hmm. Um, let's let's plumb that. What is the story of the
1: Bible? If you're going to put that together, how would you say it? I think the story of the Bible is, like I said, the hero is Jesus, uh-huh. and I think it's God's salvation. It's a story of God's redemption of his people that he loved. I do believe it is a love story. Um, it, the Bible claims that God is love, not that God does love really well, he claims that God is love, um, He always existed as love, as being the Trinitarian God, and always will exist as love. And his love for us, I love Philippians chapter 2, uh, where it depicts Jesus being this, on this heavenly throne, this glorious place, and yet he humbles himself um, because he loves us. He pursues us, and to the point of death, not only just death, but death on a cross, the most shameful death that we could possibly imagine. Like you say, this is not like any other book. This is not like any other hero. This is not like any other redemption that we find in other other novels or or, or in history. Uh, this is a truthful and beautiful and perfect story of who God is and how much He loves us. Wow. Well, I
0: listened to you last Sunday and. Uh, I- Paul you're a great preacher. I enjoyed listening to you. I could listen to you every Sunday. It'd be very easy for me to do that. But you did something on Sunday and that really kind of got my attention. Uh you took us through four verses of the Bible. Um in fact, let me read them to you and then I think sure. we should talk about it. Sure. Uh, you read from Mark chapter 1 16 to 20. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, who were in the boats, mending nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. That was it, that's what you read. And for the next, I'm going to say, 35 to 40 minutes, you spent time telling a congregation what those words actually meant. You must have thought, Paul, that in simply telling us what those words meant, that the people who had come to hear you that Sunday, there must have been something that you thought –
1: would change their lives from those words. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's a privilege for us to have people who are willing to listen to you for 40 minutes or so, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. it's, I mean, not everyone gets that. Sometimes your spouse doesn't do that for you, right? Uh, never. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's interesting because if we feel that their giving of their time is significant, then we need to honor them by giving our best. And to be honest, like I said earlier, I think to be giving our best is to be giving the Word of God. Um, there's nothing wiser that I could speak. There's nothing more significant that I could speak than the words that are written in this book. Um, so I like to go right into the verses and actually completely trust that God is going to use these words to actually change and transform lives, to encourage and inspire, to challenge and convict as well at times. And I think these words in, in these four verses can do much damage in that sense. So, so
0: Paul, when we come back, I, I want to go through those those four verses because... When I read them, somebody might have listened to that and said, I I just don't know what there's 40 minutes worth of saying to do with those words. So I want to talk to you about what you saw and why you thought those words were so significant. I think that's going to be a model for anyone reading the Bible. It's important to face these realities because unless we do, we'll never know what to do next. I'm back with Paul Park, who would call himself, I think, an expositional preacher, Mm -hmm. which means you're a verse-by-verse Bible teacher telling us what we find in the Bible itself. Um, Last Sunday, you made three points out of a small little text. One is that, You know, the disciples were called to be fishers of men. Uh, You also made a big deal about them leaving everything. So maybe I'll just take those two issues. Sure. Let's talk about being a fisher of men. What did you see in that? Yeah,
1: um, it's, it's an interesting thing because not most of us, I would think, aren't fishermen, right? So right. we don't really live in this industry. So as, as you saw on Sunday, when I was preaching this text to my church, um, I was trying to expound on what that looked like in the Sea of Galilee. I was trying to take our people into the history of, okay, the Sea of Galilee had a booming industry of uh, fishermen and this was actually a thriving business because um, in the Greco-Roman world, um, um, meat wasn't the staple food. It was actually fish. So this was a common practice. Um, we see four characters here, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. Um, of course, if you've read the Bible before, you would know that these are significant characters later on in the story. Mm-hmm. But what I saw in this was that this, this this little short segment of the book of Mark here is actually not talking so much about Simon, Andrew, and James, and John. The, the hero here really distinctively is Jesus. Um, it's Jesus. And, and in this text, I saw that Jesus, our God, desires to fish us out of the dominion of darkness. Uh, The cultural connotations of of water having to do with chaos and darkness and evil. Um, If you really understand that connotation that you can see that God desires to fish us out of darkness and into the dominion of his righteousness, the kingdom of light. And that shows me, wow, our God is loving and compassionate. Our God pursues us relentlessly. And he will not be satisfied leaving us in the realm of darkness. He wants us to come into the light. Um, And that's why Jesus came. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry and his mission here on earth, his desire is to fish us out of the water and into his kingdom. Now,
0: you pointed something out um, on Sunday, and you said that the rabbis of the ancient world Uh, they actually didn't go out looking for students. Mm. Talk about that.
1: Yeah, that's like countercultural. It was very countercultural in the Jewish culture at the time. Uh, Great rabbis who were popular, um, they would have a lineup of disciples or disciple wannabes, I guess, that lined up and said, would you take me? And if the students became worthy, they would take uh, them on as disciples. Um, Jesus shows a different model, and this is why I love being a follower of Christ. So if I can stop you here for a moment, it's kind of like, you know,
0: you want to get into Oxford or Cambridge, so there's a lineup. Of people who want to, so the best rabbis, they had students lining up. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't have students lining up.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What does he do? He calls. He summons. So he goes looking for students rather than the other way around. Mm-hmm. And what's the significance of that?
1: I think that's truly significant because our God loves us so that he, and like in Philippians 2, he comes and pursues us. He puts in flesh. What love is that? What king does that? What master does that? In the Jewish culture, the master waited and the guys came. And the guys needed to prove their worthiness. And yet to an unworthy world, God comes and says, you're worthy simply because I say you are. You're valued simply because I love you. And what a beautiful message of love there.
0: Okay. So you've you got a lot of images going on here. You've got, you've got a rabbi pursuing students, which is illustrative of God pursuing us. Uh, you've got us swimming in chaos. So let's talk about that because I know you said a whole bunch of things on Sunday about in our world, we don't think that we need a savior. Yeah. So let's talk about that as well because you got we're, we're swimming in chaos. Now, you see, if a, a fish is swimming in the sea, if you catch a fish, that fish dies. But in this image... The fish is dying in the sea and you need to catch it in order for it to live. I think yeah. that's right. Yeah. But most of us, you said, don't think that we live in a world
1: that desperately needs saving. We're doing just fine. Yeah. I think it's interesting as I speak with people, as they engage with me, they share that, you know, why do we have to talk about needing rescue? That sounds so gloomy and depressing. You know, why, why talk about hell? Why talk about um, accountability? Um, and, and, but then ironically, they recognize when they watch the news and hear stories like I've talked about uh, a few people that I met who were raped as children. And how broken and sad is that? Um, I've, I've talked about the, the mass killings in Sri Lanka. How, how, how despicable is that? Um, we don't want that to continue. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, when God dishes out his, his, I guess, consequences of sin for Adam and Eve and the serpent, at the end of that chapter, it's fascinating to me that the the chapter just closes with God saying that we should put a cherubim, an angel, to guard the, the way to the tree of life with a flaming sword to make sure Adam and Eve can never come back and take of the tree of life. And as a person reading that, I was confused. I'm like, why, God? Why wouldn't you want your people, Adam and Eve, to come and have life. And yet God's desire was that we would not live in eternal separation from him. Now that sin has broken in and this sin-marred world, um, God doesn't want us to continue to live on with this forever. God wanted to put an end to this and bring us into a hopeful relationship with him into his kingdom of light. And right from Genesis chapter three, we see a desire from God that he wants to fish us out of the water. And yet we we resist, even though we know this world is broken. We don't want to deal with it because we, I think, innately understand that we can't solve this problem of sin. Therefore, let's not talk about it because it's uncomfortable. Now, against
0: that, I mean, the reality is that everyone thinks we're doing just fine. We'll be fine on our own. Mm -hmm. And yet against that, you also use an illustration of how many superheroes are there in, you know, everyday contemporary culture. I mean, it's almost as if Against that, we still come back
1: and say, but we really do need someone to save us. Absolutely. Um, I, I'm, I'm a literature geek, like I said. So um, all the popular novels in the last 10 years, right, like the Harry Potter series, the Hunger Games, the Divergence series. We're talking about Star Wars that's been revamped, uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. It all revolves around a broken and dystopian reality. Kids are growing up and expressing by reading and popularizing these novels and movies. They're basically telling us, I believe I live in a dystopian world in need of a savior. And I'm going to fictionally find this in Iron Man or Superman or any of these heroes that we see in literature or movies. We have a hunger for this. Yeah. So you, you helped us in just four verses see
0: you know, here's the, the reality of the human race. We are swimming in a sea, which is actually chaotic and leads to death. And along comes a Savior who volunteers to fish us out. But he doesn't stop there. He says to these disciples whom he calls, you're going to join me in this mission. And uh, they leave everything. You pointed out that the disciples probably weren't on the verge of starvation and poverty. They're probably running a pretty profitable business. Yeah. So what do they do? What's Christ calling them
1: to do? Yeah, they they have a lot to lose, right? Some people think, you know, these disciples were poor, illiterate and all that stuff. And I'm not saying they were like of noble rank or anything, but yeah, they had a profitable business perhaps. And most likely they had a a thriving future ahead of them. And Jesus calls them and all of a sudden they immediately leave these things behind. And in in the case of James and John, we see that they left their father behind. Um, that's a lot to ask of, especially in a very communal culture, which was the case back in the day. Um, so I think, again, this is more of a story of Jesus rather than the four people that we see here. This is indicative of how Jesus led. Jesus left heaven's throne and glory and came to earth to huh. pursue us. Huh. And Jesus gave up more than we could ever give up. Jesus gave up more than he's asking us to give up. Um he, and yet yet he does ask it of it, does he? Yeah, and he does. And, and that's the fantastic part, because the most beautiful path of love does require sacrifice. And he models it himself, and at the same time, he calls us to follow it. So if someone's asking the
0: question, do I need to give up anything to follow Jesus, the answer is? Absolutely. Got to give up everything. Everything. So he demands first priority— And in this case, he demands that these guys simply, you leave everything and you follow me. Mm -hmm. And I think you pointed out, that's a model for all of us.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, Scripture says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Right. It's following me is the end goal. And yet the way in which we do that is to deny ourselves and to take up our cross. Now, that's a difficulty, isn't it? I mean, a lot of us are going to say,
0: well, I don't want to do that. Why would I want to do that?
1: Yeah, and I think that's why we need uh, scripture. We need the Holy Spirit to help us out. Um, I think we will constantly struggle to do that. Our world will tell us that, no, you don't want to do that. That is foolish. And yet we innately know this because when we become parents, I, when I had a child three years ago, yeah. I, I thought I'm not ready for this. And I hope that's normal. I hope I'm not the worst parent <laughs> in the world. I knew that I wasn't ready for it. I wasn't capable. I wasn't well equipped. I knew that, oh no, this is gonna be horrible. This is gonna be this is not gonna go well. And yet I, I realized in that moment I want to sacrifice everything for Nathan. There wasn't anything that I wouldn't give. We we know that the most beautiful picture of love requires and involves sacrifice. We paint it with the ugly brush and say, no, sacrifice is bad. You don't need it. It's all about you. You know, just fill yourself. It's all good. And yet when we become parents, we know that's not the way we want to live. That's not true love. No, not at all. Paul, thank you so much. You've taken us
0: through four verses and you've explained to us why it is that the scripture is so rich and informs all of life. Uh, You're a young man. You're just starting out in the pastoral ministry. May God give you this continual ability to open this word and teach men and women how to live. Thanks for showing up today at Truth in Life today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's important to face these realities because unless we do we'll never know what to do next. I want to say something about the Bible and it's surprising. Simply reading the Bible through answers every question that human beings will face in this life. How do I get meaning out of life? What's most important? How do I deal with forgiveness when people harm me? How do I deal with um, my finances? How do I deal with my own children? More than anything else, How do I make my life count? And what does a life of devotion look like? What is prayer like? How do I know if I'm going to heaven? How do I know if God loves me? I mean, all of the great questions in life are answered as we read through the text of the Bible. You know, one of the things that Paul did for us is explain to us just simply how reading any given text can be meaningful. Uh, We could have picked any text anywhere and we could have gained a meaning out of it and shown how that text actually applies to the real life of God's people. You know, it's it's exciting for me, having been a lifelong Bible teacher, to meet a young man like Paul Park who's committed to the same career goals. I will, for the length of my ministry, simply explain God's Word to his people. There is nothing more significant than hearing God's Word explained, reading it for ourselves, and applying it to our own lives. I hope you agree with me. I hope you can see how utterly exciting and life transforming that simple thing is. Thanks for joining us on Truth and Life today. It's a delight to have you. I want you to continue to join us as we examine uh, issues in scripture that make a change in the way in which we live our lives. Uh, Thanks for joining us today, and please make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more interviews, episodes, and Bible teaching content. Uh, Thanks for joining us today.